0: I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid.
1: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking.
0: Oh, what do you want to do there
1: for? Fasten your
0: seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They
1: call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film was so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine?
0: I'm doing well, Trey. How about you?
1: Good, thank you. This time, we are looking at the 21st Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1948, and the Best Picture winner of that year, Hamlet, directed by Laurence Olivier. The film was released on September ninth, 1948, here in the States, and featured uh, Laurence Olivier as Hamlet. Olivier was a triple threat on this film. He uh, starred as Hamlet, directed, and as far as I could find, was the closest person I'm credited with doing the uh, screenplay. Basil Sidney as Claudius, Eileen Hurley as Gertrude, Felix Elmer as Polonius, and Gene Simmons as Ophelia. The film was, of course, based on the play by William Shakespeare, and I will give a brief synopsis which I have cribbed from Wikipedia. The film opens on the battlements of Elsinore in Denmark, where a sentry, Francisco, is relieved of his watch by another sentry, Bernardo, who, with yet another sentry, Marcellus, has twice previously seen the ghost of King Hamlet. Marcellus then arrives with the skeptical Horatio, Prince Hamlet's friend. Suddenly, all three see the ghost, and Horatio demands that the ghost speak. The ghost then vanishes without a word. Inside the great hall of the castle, the court is celebrating the marriage of Gertrude and King Claudius. Old King Hamlet has died apparently of an accidental snakebite, and his wife Gertrude has, within a month of the tragedy, married the king's late brother. Prince Hamlet sits alone, refusing to join in the celebration, despite the protest of the new king. When the court has left the Great Hall, Hamlet fumes over the hasty marriage, muttering to himself the words, and yet within a month. Soon, Horatio and the sentries enter, telling Hamlet of the ghostly apparition of his father. Hamlet proceeds to investigate, and upon arriving on the battlements, sees the ghost. Noting that the ghost beckons him forward, Hamlet follows it up unto a tower, where it reveals its identity as the ghost of Hamlet's father. He tells Hamlet that he was murdered, who did it, and how it was done. We, the audience, then see the murder reenacted in a flashback as the ghost describes the deed. Claudius is seen pouring poison into the late King Hamlet's ear, thereby killing him. Hamlet does not at first accept this as the truth, and then prepares to feign madness so as to test Claudius' conscience conscience without jumping to conclusions. This feigned insanity attracts the attention of Polonius, the... Counsellor to the King, who is completely convinced that Hamlet has gone mad, Polonius pushes this point with the King, claiming that it is derived from Hamlet's love for Ophelia, Polonius's daughter. Claudius, however, is not fully convinced as Polonius set up a meeting between Hamlet and Ophelia. Hamlet's madness is constant even in this exchange, and Claudius is convinced. Hamlet then hires a group of wandering stage performers requesting that they enact the play, "The Murder of a Gonzago." Gonzago, excuse me, for the king. However, Hamlet makes a few alterations to the play so as to make it mirror the circumstances of the late king's murder. Claudius, unable to endure the play, calls out for light and retires to his room. Hamlet is now convinced of Claudius' treachery. He finds Claudius alone and has ample opportunity to kill the villain. However, at this time, Claudius is praying and Hamlet does not seek to send him to heaven so he waits and bides his time. He instead confronts Gertrude about the matter of his father's death and Claudius' treachery. During this confrontation, he hears a voice from the arras and believes that it was Claudius' eavesdropping, plunging his dagger into the curtain. On discovering that he has in fact killed the eavesdropping Polonius instead, Hamlet is only mildly upset and he continues to confront his mother. He then sees the ghostly apparition of his father and proceeds to converse with it. Gertrude, who cannot see the ghost, becomes convinced that Hamlet is mad. Hamlet is deported to England by Claudius, who has given orders for him to be killed once he reaches there. Fortunately, Hamlet's ship is attacked by pirates, and he is returned to Denmark. In his absence, however, Ophelia goes mad over Hamlet's rejection, and the idea that her own sweetheart has killed her father drowns, apparently committing suicide. Laertes, Ophelia's brother, is driven to avenge her and his father's death. Claudius and Laertes learn of Hamlet's return and prepare to have him killed. However, they plan to make it look like an accident. Claudius orders Laertes to challenge Hamlet to a duel, wherein Laertes will be given a poison blade that will kill with a bare touch. In case Laertes is unable to hit Hamlet, Claudius also prepares a poison drink. Hamlet meets Laertes' challenge and engages him in a duel. Hamlet wins the first two rounds, and Gertrude drinks from the cup. Whilst in between bouts, Laertes rushes Hamlet and strikes him on the arm, fatally poisoning him. Hamlet, not knowing this, continues to duel. Hamlet eventually disarms Laertes and switches blades with him. Hamlet then strikes Laertes in the wrist, fatally wounding him. Gertrude submits to the poison and dies, warning Hamlet not to drink from the cup. Laertes, dying, confesses the whole plot to Hamlet, who flies at Claudius in a fit of rage, killing him, then dies himself. Horatio, horrified by all of this, orders that Hamlet be given a decent funeral, and the young prince's body is taken away from the Danish court, while the cannons of Elsinore fire off a peal of ordinance and respect. So, I, I want your thoughts on it, Blaine, but just in case our um, listeners are thinking, wow, that was a curious synopsis of Hamlet. The film itself was a, is an adaptation of the play and makes... Certain cuts in the play. So, any omissions you heard in the synopsis were intentional. They were omissions from the film. But, Lane, what did you think of this adaptation of Hamlet?
0: Well, first of all, I have to admit it's my first exposure to this. The Shakespeare that I studied in school was Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and The Tempest. So, up to this point, most of my familiarity with Hamlet comes from The Lion King. This one, I felt that it suffered because Laurence Olivier reveres Shakespeare too much. The actors were not directed to be physical participants. It was almost like they were told moving will distract people from the words and let people revel in the words. Because when anyone is speaking, everyone stands and listens. And then they get new positions and someone else speaks. And the new positions and someone else speaks. It is very rare that people are moving and speaking at the same time. And that slows the pace of the film and I, I think it detracts it. I don't feel this was directed the way Shakespeare would have directed it in his day and to the film's detriment.
1: I, I agree and I disagree. I think Shakespeare might have directed it similarly, but it would have been if Shakespeare did, it would have been because of the limits of what the stage could be at that time. For 1948, I think this has great production values, and I like a lot of the camera pans around the set that give an impression of depth and size to the castle, but it does point out that you have a lot more stage dressing and scenery, et cetera, to work in. So to your point, there's no point in having a grandly appointed room with a large banquet table and chairs if everyone is going to stand around the table and everyone's going to ignore everything on the table, et cetera. So I I, I do agree with you in that regard. Most, Most of what was cut in terms of content was political. And I don't mean political like, I think Olivier was afraid of the politics that was in there, but in terms of I've read this and I'm completely drawing a blank for the podcast, so I apologize to our listeners, but there's a king of another country where old King Hamlet had defeated that king, that kingdom in battle and displaced the king of that country. The prince of that country was trying to regain his throne. So Claudius is, in addition to trying to deal with Hamlet. Claudius is trying to deal with Hamlet while dealing with this urgent foreign affairs matter. Where I think it most hurts the plot of this film, the synopsis mentions Claudius sending Hamlet off and Hamlet being rescued by pirates. That gets mentioned, but the resolution of it is virtually ignored. So to me... If I had not been familiar with the play, it would not have been obvious to me where or how Hamlet came back. The reason why that becomes a bigger deal is in the play, Claudia sends Hamlet off to the court of England along with reaching out to England, letting England know, you know, if you want good relationships with Denmark, Hamlet will have an accident. All of that gets lost, so it looks like Hamlet goes away and then just kind of cheerfully comes back in the film. And I I think not having that context hurt it. A lot of people, from what I've read, a lot of the critics have a problem with Rosencrantz and Gilderstein being removed. In the play, there are two actors who were friends of Hamlet who Claudius kind of engages to spy on Hamlet and report back to him. I didn't really feel their absence. I don't think that they were really important to the major high notes of the plot. What did you think of the... I know you said that they were very stilted in stage, but with all of that, what did you think about the different performances?
0: You know, I think I think the casting was good. Like We have some very talented actors. You, you mentioned Gene Simmons. There's a couple names that didn't come up that stood out to me as a Whovian. We have Patrick Troughton as one of the traveling players. He plays the king in the play that they put on for Claudius. He would, of course, go on to play the second Doctor. And when Doctor Who was first hitting big in Britain, they used to take the first few episodes of a series and package them as a movie for sales overseas. Unfortunately, the Doctor Who story arcs that they wanted to use were seven and ten parts, so they were too long for that purpose, and they retooled them and rewrote them and made full-color original films, starring Peter Cushing as the Doctor. And Peter Cushing plays Osric. Genre fans probably know Peter Cushing better as Grand Moff Tarkin in the original Star Wars. So they both make appearances here, which was nice, but yeah, for the I, The issues I had with the performances, I think, have much more to do with the direction than with the performers. I think they were well cast, but I think they were told to play it in a way that does not appeal to me.
1: Yeah, I think I'm in alignment with that. I think the problem that I have with the film are more direction than performance. The other main weak point to me in this production is as it is staged, I never get a good feeling for Hamlet's relationship with Ophelia. Because I think Olivier makes the mistake of not giving you a sense of what normal was for that relationship. But I think Gene Simmons plays it brilliantly. It's just, I never got the feeling for, did, you know, did Hamlet ever like her or not? Just going into this cold, if you will, if this is my only exposure to Hamlet, I, I don't think he really conveyed Hamlet's... Feelings, except for maybe at the end, and then it was less about Ophelia and more about kind of that t- toxic machismo, you know, you can't care for her how mo- more than I do. I care for her you know it mm-hmm. was more a pissing match than Laerte than really anything about Ophelia
0: yeah I, I would I would agree with that early on, as we said, this is my only formal exposure to Hamlet I, I said you know. Obviously, we've seen things that have been influenced by it, because the number of cliches that I heard in the dialogue, sometimes three or four in the same speech, you know, I I see how often this is referenced and how much influence it has had on other works. And like I said, The Lion King is one of the better known versions that borrows heavily, we shall say. Right. I think it's the, the polite way to do it. I just... A lot of it was directed to leave me cold, so like you said, I didn't know I, I didn't know what their relationship was early on. And it's not like there's a shortage of Hamlets. If we look at the IMDB connections where it's got the version of, there were versions of Hamlet produced in 1900, 1907, three different versions in 1908, three in 1910. 1911 1913 1914 another 1914 15 1917 1919 has two of them one called ophelia one called hamlet there's a 1921 hamlet Kakun from 1935 was based on this a tv movie was split into two parts in 1947 and then we get this one so there was no shortage of attempts to bring hamlet to the screen there are many many more afterwards that we don't need to get into but it goes right up you know there's some on 2017 this has been edited into other ones this has been referenced i'm looking at a lot of references here including dune from 1984 which is i'd have to go back and see exactly how that's referenced because they didn't elaborate could very well be you know just some of the staging for the duels and things like that it's you know this is an influential version of a highly influential play.
1: I I didn't do it prior to the podcast, but I will do this, and when this goes up, I'll post it as a follow-up. Siskoid from the Fire and Water Network is a Shakespeare scholar, and I know that he collects editions of Hamlet. I'll, I'll reach out to him and kind of do a, you know, out of the different movie and televised versions what's his recommendation for an adaptation of hamlet i think all of olivier's directing energy into this went more into the set design and the camera movements and as we said less about the performances
0: yeah that's certainly the way it feels unless he was telling people to mute their performances because i've seen all of these people i mean It it took me a while to place Jean Simmons as Sister Sarah from Guys and Dolls. I knew I recognized her. But between the long blonde hair and the way she carried herself, I wouldn't connect the two. But when you see her in Guys and Dolls, she is far more animated. And the same is true for pretty much everybody that I recognize here.
1: It's a bit part, but I think the only one who probably I I think the only ones that Lawrence gave the Freedom to were the more bit parts, you know. I, I I would have to kind of scan through here to see who played him, but the uh yeah Stanley Holloway of course the the grave digger was allowed to be animated and mm-hmm. uh, Osric was.
0: Osric was the one I was going to to call out, played by Peter Cushing.
1: But everybody else, you're right, had had to give kind of very. I don't monotonous isn't the right word, but just a very stiff performance. I will say, if you are one of those people who likes to hunt down roles that your favorite genre actors have been in, watch this for Peter Cushing. Don't watch it for Patrick Troughton. Not that Patrick Troughton is bad, but the play within the play in this adaptation is all done in mine. And the camera focuses on Claudius's reaction and Hamlet's reaction with the play always being in the background. I, I know that it's Patrick Troughton because everybody tells me that it's Patrick Troughton, but I don't see Patrick Trouton if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I only was able to, to pick him out because I'd seen him. I saw his name in the credits and I was looking for him, but I had to actually Google Player King. Afterwards, in Hamlet, to make sure that yes, it is the one that I thought it was, because even watching for him, knowing from the credits which role he would be playing, I wasn't sure it was Patrick Trouton. But yeah, Peter Cushing is unmistakably Peter Cushing.
1: But against type of what you think of as Peter Cushing, it, you know, he his roles rather foppish in this. So if you only mm-hmm. know him as you know, Grand Moff Tarkin or Van Helsing, it's a completely different performance than what you're used to seeing from him.
0: Yeah, it honestly, it is actually much more in line with his version of The Doctor, because when they adapted Doctor Who to those movies, it was a very literal or liberal adaptation that was heavily played for comedy. It was not representative of the TV series. Um, He was actually a bit of a, even though... He was a human being who created the time or the TARDIS in those movies. He was kind of the the bumbling, forgetful grandfather as well. But yeah, it is. It's this is one of the few times that he was allowed to play with comedy, and he does it well. So I watched this with my wife, and his role was the only one that got any visible reaction out of her. We were at times, frankly, both struggling to stay focused and even awake as we were watching the film, which may be tipping my hand a little bit later when we get to the did the Academy make the right choice part of the conversation.
1: Do you want to transition to what the nominees were for the year? Oh,
0: we might as well. Okay. So for Best Picture, obviously Hamlet won. It was up against Johnny Belinda, The Red Shoes, The Snake Pit, and The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Best Director... Lawrence Olivier was nominated for Hamlet, but he lost to John Huston's work in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Olivier did take home the Best Actor Oscar, beating out Lou Ayers for Johnny Belinda. Montgomery Clift from The Search, Dan Daly from When My Baby Smiles at Me, and Clifton Webb from Sitting Pretty. Jane Wyman took home Best Actress as Johnny Belinda. Yes, she's a real person, not just a, a joke by Doc Brown in Back to the Future. She beat out Ingrid Bergman for Joan of Arc, Olivia de Havilland for The Snake Pit, Irene Dunn for I Remember Mama, and Barbara Stanwyck for Sorry, Wrong Number. Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Houston for The Treasure of Sierra Madre. And yeah, I do believe he was, he was related to John. I forget whether he was the father or son of John Houston. The father. Okay, thank you. Charles Bickford was nominated for Johnny Belinda, Jose Ferrer for Joan of Arc, Oscar Homolka for I Remember Mama and Cecil Kellaway for Luck of the Irish. And Best Supporting Actress went to Claire Trevor for Key Largo, up against Barbara Bel and Ellen Corby, both for I Remember Mama, Agnes Moorhead for Johnny Belinda, and Gene Simmons as Ophelia. So that is the fourth nomination so far that Hamlet has earned. Best Motion Picture Story went to The Search over Louisiana Story, Naked City, Red River, and the Red Shoes. And Best Screenplay went to Treasure of Sierra Madre over A Foreign Affair, Johnny Belinda, The Search, and The Snake Pit. Now, just to run through the other categories, Best Documentary Feature went to The Secret Land. Documentary Short Subject went to Toward Independence. Live Action One Reeler went to Symphony of a City. Live Action Short Subject Two Reeler Seal Island one out... and. Maybe it's the Albertan in me, but I also want to point out there was actually a nominated film about the Calgary Stampede. The Best Short Subject Cartoon went to The Little Orphan. It's a Tom and Jerry cartoon by Fred Quimby. The Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Hamlet was nominated, but the award went to The Red Shoes. Other nominees include Joan of Arc, Johnny Belinda, and The Snake Pit. The Best Scoring of a Musical went to Easter Parade beating out The Emperor Waltz, The Pirate, Romance on the High Seas, and When My Baby Smiles at Me. The best original song went to Buttons and Bows from The Pale Face. That's the Bob Hope film that beat out music from Casbah, Romance on the High Seas, The Lady in Ermine, and Wet Blanket Policy. Best sound recording went to The Snake Pit. Best art direction only had two nominees. Hamlet beat out Johnny Belinda. Art Direction Color went to The Red Shoes, beating out Joan of Arc. Black and White Cinematography went to The Naked City. Hamlet was not nominated. Best Cinematography and Color went to Joino, uh, not join, Joan of Arc. Best Costume Design, two nominees again. Hamlet beat out BF's Daughter. Color Costume Design went to Joan of Arc. Best Film Editing went to The Naked City, beating out Joan of Arc, Johnny Belinda, The Red River, and The Red Shoes. And Best Special Effects... Portrait of Jenny beat out deep waters. And the honorary awards went to Sid Grohman, Adolf Zukor, and Walter wanger Best Foreign Language Film went to Monsieur Vincent from France. The Juvenile Award went to Ivan Jandel, and the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Jerry Wald. The Scientific or Technical Awards, uh, Class Two, went to the developers of Paralyte, uh, as well as Nick Calton. Louis J. Witten, 20th Century Fox, for helping to preserve and flame-proof foliage, which actually was a major issue at the time, because at the time, the lights they needed to film on the quality of film they had had to be so intense that, yeah, if you needed dry foliage, there was a severe fire risk. Uh, the Class Three Scientific and Technical Oscars went to Marty Martin, Jack Lannan, Russell Sherman, and RKO for developing Processes for the uh, special effects and electrical departments. So, yeah, Hamlet was tied with Joan of Arc with, for seven nominations. The most nominated film was Johnny Belinda with 12. And Hamlet has the most wins with four, followed by Treasure of Sierra Madre with three. And then there were two wins each for Joan of Arc, Naked City, and The Red Shoes.
1: So, just going through the different areas where Hamlet was nominated and either won or lost, because I have seen or was able to see relatively recently most of these, there was definitely a theme of psychological issues running through all of the nominees, with the possible exception of Johnny Belinda. You have The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where greed and paranoia are of strong central themes. The Snake Pit is about a woman who's in an asylum based off of memories she is repressing. It's an intentionally confusing film, I guess is the best way to put it, Blaine. You get a small introduction to Olivia de Havilland's character, and then boom, she's in the asylum. She's not sure why she's in there. You're not sure why she's in there. So you have to kind of rely on the lead character as an unreliable narrator, if you will. The Red Shoes is about an up-and-coming prima ballerina who is caught between her love for a composer and the demands and love of the impresario who gave her her start. And uh, Johnny Belinda is about a deaf and mute girl who is uh, raped and how how the town reacts to that and her family and her friends based off of the assumptions and the gossip that go around because obviously she herself cannot tell her side of the story. So a lot of strong psychological components and then of course a, a strong theme of Hamlet is revenge and what do you do with revenge when revenge leads to patricide and matricide and madness. So a lot of strong psychological components. I will say that I think the Academy got this one wrong. If I had to rank these personally just going by what was nominated, I would probably say Treasure of the Sierra Madre would be the winner with the Snake Pit being the strongest contender. I think for all of the reasons why we mentioned, I think we would both agree that Olivier's direction was not the strongest for the film.
0: And I don't think the Academy agrees with that since he didn't win Best Director.
1: Right. He, he did win Best Actor, and I have not seen all of the films that were nominated for Best Actor. The only other one that I saw was Johnny Belinda. I think Olivier, as ha- I, I think the source material elevates Olivier's performance, and Olivier's obviously in his comfort zone. Lou Ayers was fine, but it was a much... He was the gentle doctor that always did the right thing who helped Johnny Belinda and her family, so it was a much more tame, reserved, genial performance. There wasn't really any dynamism to contrast with. Best Supporting Actress I found to be an interesting category. I've seen Key Largo, but I haven't watched it recently, so Claire Trevor's... Performance I'm struggling to remember. Agnes Moorhead was really good in Johnny Belinda. I, I think Gene Simmons would have been a stronger contender if, kind of as you said, Gene Simmons was allowed to act and not recite.
0: Yeah, that's entirely possible. Personally, Hamlet is the only one of the nominees I was able to have time to see. I've had Treasure Sierra Madre sitting in my collection for far too long, unwatched. We intended to watch it the night before this recording, but life got in the way. Uh, Just to pull back the curtain a little bit, I am a teacher. We are recording this in September 2020. Everyone in my profession has a lot more on their plates now than we have in the past. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association agrees with a lot of these in the 6th Annual Golden Globe Awards. There are only 93 voters in that. There's 93 members. So they actually ended up giving uh, Best Picture awards to three of the five nominees that the Academy selected. So their choices for Best Picture, they said it was a tie between Johnny Belinda and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, while Hamlet won Best Foreign Film, English Language. So because Hamlet came out of England, they separated it, into its own category. So it did win, and Olivier won Best Actor with them as well. Jane Wyman, Best Actress. Again, there's a lot of overlap. Best Supporting Actor was also Walter Houston. Best Supporting Actress went to Ellen Corby for I Remember Mama, so that's one where they disagreed but picked someone else the Academy nominated. Uh, Screenplay went to The Search. Motion Picture Original Score went to The Red Shoes. Cinematography was La Perla. And the Special Award for the Juvenile Actor also went to Ivan Jandl for the search. So agreement there. And then Promoting International Understanding, again, was the search. So there is a lot of overlap between those there. If, however, we step away from just what they nominated and look at everything released in that year, letterboxed users actually put the red shoes at the top of the year. So that appears to have been their choice based on the nominees. Second is The Bicycle Thieves, uh, which I've seen. That one is a a well-made Italian film Mm -hmm. that showed up in film studies. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is third. Rope is fourth. That's Alfred Hitchcock's film, which seems a little stilted compared to the rest because he was trying to do it in one continuous shot, which the technology didn't actually support. He could only film 10 minutes at a time So there's things like opening the lid of a chest or, you know, the camera panning past the back of someone's suit jacket so that they could try to cut invisibly. So it is interesting, if not quite as engaging as his other films. Then we've got Letter from an Unknown Woman, Germany Year Zero, Red River, La Terra Trima, Children of the Beehive, They Live by Night, Drunken Angel, Unfaithfully Yours, The Fallen Idol, Key Largo, Spring in a Small Town, Fort Apache. Portrait of Genie, Brighton Rock, Los Tres Justoca. Next up is one that we have heard Trey mention many times, The Big Clock.
1: Go watch The Big Clock.
0: <laughs> we have Oliver Twist, The Yellow Sky, Snake Pit comes up next, A Hen in the Wind, Johnny Belinda, Moonrise, Naked City, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, The Search, Force of Evil, and then we come with Hamlet. So as far as Letterboxd users are concerned, Hamlet is not the best picture of the year. It's the 30th best picture of the year. After that, we've got Macbeth, Roadhouse, Uh, Easter Parade comes up after, Call Northside 777 comes up after, which I have seen and can easily recommend. I would also say Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein is better than Hamlet and is probably the best Abbott and Costello movie I have ever seen.
1: I can get behind that. Just really quickly about The Red Shoe. It's a Powell and Pressburger film. They make really luscious, beautiful films. It is about a ballet, and the ballet is performed... Kind of the ballet itself almost serves as the second act of the film. So it's... I know you and Paul discussed this on Is It Jaws with Scene in the Rain? If you felt like the ballet at the end of Singing in the Rain kind of brings the film to a halt, the same thing happens with the Red Shoes. That's that's probably the one strike against it that I think modern audiences might have.
0: Okay. And that could be why it doesn't feature as prominently on the IMDb list. Because that, as we said before, the letterbox list tends to be more in line with critical views. The IMDb list tends to be more in line with mass audiences. And the two agree on the top five, just not on the order. IMDb users said the best movie of the year is Bicycle Thieves, followed by Treasure of Sierra Madre, The Red Shoes, Rope, Letter from an Unknown Woman, then we're into I Remember Mama, Germany Year Zero, La Terra Trema, The Search, The Red River, Oliver Twist, Key Largo comes in at number 12, Drunken Angel, Portrait of Jenny, Johnny Belinda comes in at 15, The Fallen Idol, The Big Clock is number 17 on the IMDb list. And this is just advanced search feature films sorted by year with at least 1,000 votes. The Winslow Boy, Unfaithfully Yours, The Snake Pit is 20, Naked City is 21, and then Hamlet comes in at 22 before They Live By Night, Sitting Pretty, Macbeth, and so forth. Easter Parade is in there at 31. Call Northside 777 is 32. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein is 34. But a very large string of these have very similar scores. So Hamlet, it comes out at a 7.6 out of 10 with IMDb users. And out of those that round to 7.6, it's the lowest rated. The next is a 7.5. And Avin in Frankenstein is in the 7.4 group. So there's a lot of really tightly packed movies there. We also have Roadhouse, Mr. Blanding's Build His Dream House. So there's actually a lot of film noir coming out at this time, too, that does seem to be flooding the market, which may be part of the reason for the rise of the musical that we are about to hit. Yeah. Just, you know, move to something a little more optimistic. The pendulum swings the other way. But there are some excellent film noirs coming out in the late 40s here. So again, just one last piece on Call Northside 777. If anyone's unfamiliar with that, I don't know what you, Trey, or our listeners, it's based on a true story where Jimmy Stewart plays a reporter who's, you know, he's been forced to interview some woman who says her, her son is, you know, falsely imprisoned. And he thinks, well, yeah, every mother thinks her son is falsely imprisoned, but eventually realizes, no, she's right. So it it's another well-done film noir, and it was actually part of the Fox film noir collection. I think it was Spy number 3. In that series where they numbered up to 24 and then stopped numbering when they released 25 and 26 for some reason. Completely changed the packaging.
1: I don't think I've seen it, but this is going to sound silly. I worked in uh, video retail through most of my college years. And when I worked was during the period to where sell-through was an established market. You had uh, stores like Camelot and uh, Suncoast Motion Picture Company that were starting to focus on uh, sell-through videos. And Fox started kind of a line. I don't even remember what the line was entitled. But it was more, I'm going to call it secondary films or films that people may have forgotten that were critically well accepted. How Green Was My Valley was released kind of in that same line. And I just remember the package to call Northside 777. Okay. Because it was a very vivid package.
0: All right. Yeah, it it is definitely worth tracking down.
1: And it's Jimmy Stewart, right?
0: It is Jimmy Stewart, uh, both in that and in the radio play adaptation. Okay. I think it was, I want to say it was the, the same series of episodes that our listeners would have been hearing by now. We are almost done with those. Because that the last one adapted in that radio series was All About Eve, the winner from 1950. So in about two months' time, we are going to run out of those radio adaptations of the Best Picture winners.
1: I, I will provide a small plug for another show just because he's been a, a guest of ours. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time going into The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but it will be my pick for Best Picture this year, especially out of what was nominated. Um, I'll post a link to it in the show notes, but uh, Robin Kelly from the Fire and Water Network over on Film and Water has covered uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So if you want to know more about that particular film and why I'm recommending it, you can check out that episode.
0: Okay, great. Because, yeah, I think had this quality of production started with a script not written by Shakespeare, it would have been forgotten. Well, I shouldn't say the production. It's the performances that were muted. Because as Trey said, like the the sets are incredible and they could have done so much more. And the the camera tricks they used to make the sets appear contiguous and huge were very impressive. Because they were not contiguous. You know, the hallways are matte paintings and yet they make it look like the camera goes down the hallway and into the next room. Um, you would actually believe that they found some unused castle somewhere and filmed in it if there wasn't a goof somewhere at one point in the film you can hear Big Ben ringing aside from that I would just um I don't know who would you recommend this to
1: I I would recommend to Shakespeare fans I would I I would also potentially if people wanted to see more of what Olivier was known for um and, and what I mean by that was you know Olivier had roles in American films, but I think to American audiences around this time, he would have been more, you know, Olivier, the lead from a film like Rebecca and Les. You know, they wouldn't have had exposure to all of the theater work that his reputation was built around. So I think this may have been one of the first opportunities for audiences outside of the UK to be exposed to that.
0: That... Is very possible, yeah. So that I would agree with both of those. Yeah, if you if you're a Shakespeare completionist, then do this. If I don't know if you just want exposure to Hamlet the play, this may not be the best starting point because of how stilted the performances are. I'd be interested in hearing what version Siskoid recommends. That might be a better go to because again yeah I can't think of anyone I'd recommend it to that that Trey hasn't already mentioned here it's if you're here for Shakespeare or if you're here for Olivier go for it if you're here for others I I think Gene Simmons was far more impressive in Guys and Dolls which was what 3 or 4 years later something in that mm-hmm. neighborhood uh, this is not the most prominent for Peter Cushing we know Patrick Troughton exists in this but as we've said even when you know what you're looking for and where to look it's not obviously him.
1: Yeah, I mean if you if you were to say to me, Trey, give me a Patrick Troughton film, I would say, depending on your disposition, go watch either Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger or The Omen. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put this out there.
0: No, I don't think many others would either. If you look at Trouton's IMDB best known for, somehow Doctor Who does not show up on the list. We've got the Omen, Jason and the Argonauts, Scars of Dracula, and the Box of Delights, which actually surprises me i I would have expected that to be in there, yeah, I'm also looking at his i m d b and apparently I didn't even realize the first time I saw him was not it was actually in super grand, which is did you get super grand as a child, or was that strictly a Canadian thing?
1: I think it may have been strictly a Canadian thing. I know that we had. I know that I got Super Ted, but not Super Grand.
0: Okay, Uh, Super Grand. It was uh, a comedy series about a grandmother who found an oatmeal recipe that would give her superpowers, and she would fight crime. It ran for twenty-seven episodes from nineteen eighty-five to nineteen eighty-seven, and it was very Canadian. Uh, The I think the production company has been bankrupt long enough that it's technically in the public domain oh actually it looks like it was a UK looking at the details it was a a British series so yeah maybe we just got it through CBC so it felt Canadian because my American friends had never seen it
1: the the only reason why I bring up Super Ted was because John Pertwee was in Super Ted so (laughs) I wasn't just randomly grabbing at something that had super in the title that I had seen but
0: (laughs) okay, yeah we should Anyway, it's I I fondly remember it, because the last time I saw it, I was 9 or 10. I don't... I'd be scared to watch it again, because the things that I, I'd seem to have enjoyed in that way and at that level at the time, they just haven't aged well. Yeah. So, anyway. So, next month, we will be dealing with a... Obviously, the winner from the 22nd ceremony from the 1949 releases. This is one where the nominees that did not take home the award were 12 O'Clock High, A Letter to Three Wives, The Heiress, and Battleground, and the winner was All the King's Men. So, directed by Robert Rossin. So, join us again in the month's time for All the King's Men. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said
1: life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.